Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. My name is Maureen Metcalf. I am the CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also an adjunct faculty member of universities in the, uni- in the U.S. and Germany. With me today, our guest is Troy Mosley. Troy is a healthcare administrator by training. He spent the first 20 years of his professional life serving as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. He was raised in Jacksonville, Florida in the 70s and 80s in an upper middle class, predominantly white community. He's always enjoyed writing, history, and is obsessed with the ideals of American democracy, fair play, and inclusion. So the outcome of this show, we're specifically going to focus on inclusion as a good organizational practice. So the global market is diverse and having a diverse workforce is a strategic advantage because it provides an organization with a greater ability to understand various segments of their consumer base and develop products and services that will better resonate with these segments and therefore drive better results and higher impact. In for-profit businesses, it also drives higher and more sustainable profits. So Troy's going to talk to us about the book he's written that focuses on inclusion, among several other factors, and, and give us a little bit of his experience as an African American, a man of African American descent, growing up in a white community and serving in the military, and how has he seen that journey through his lens, and from what he's seen. How is that uniquely impacting his thinking and recommendations for how we create a more inclusive global community? So I created this show, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, because so many really effective and dedicated leaders spend so much of their time focusing on the work of doing the job and don't necessarily step back and take time to update their thinking process change their mindset and change some of the tactics they employ on a daily basis. So the intent of this show is to help you as leaders expose you to different thinking than you might have in your busy professional lives and offer some insights that will help shape either your mindset and or the tactics you employ on a regular basis. So with that, welcome, Troy. Hi, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you for the warm introduction. And I would be more than happy uh, to share with you my insights into uh, this phenomenon, this thing called inclusion. And uh, it has shaped 
my life and, and touched me and affected my outlook, uh, both professionally and socially. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. So let's start with what's the name of your book and what inspired you to write it? And then we'll step into how do you personally define inclusion? Sure. The name of my book is Unwritten Truths, The Armed Forces and American Social Justice. I was uh, inspired to write this book because I come from a family of military tradition. And as a black man uh, growing up in the United States, I was fully aware that the opportunities that my mother and father provided me uh, were a direct uh, function of the uh, civil rights legislation that was passed in the 60s and 70s. Um, What I didn't know, you know, growing up as a young child is uh, how long, you know, that struggle took to manifest manifest itself into the reality um, that, that I was able to enjoy the fruits of, of that legislation and that great social movement. So, um, you know, my father uh, grew up as a sharecropper. Uh, he had uh, seven brothers and sisters. Uh, and if you don't know that much about that tradition, it's essentially a uh, evolution that came out of the slavery system where the slaves were freed and a lot of them that didn't migrate north uh, continued to work on the land that they worked as slaves. The arrangement changed such that you would get paid a nominal fee uh, in exchange for uh, room, board, shelter, medical care. So um, my grandmother, uh, that's how she made her living. And uh, my seven brothers and sisters, and she wanted a better life. Uh, for her children, and she emphasized uh, education was a means of achieving a better life, and she was successful in doing that. Um, Of her seven children, uh, one became a dentist. My father had a BS in biology. Uh, He went into the military Vietnam era officer. Uh, His younger brother was a pharmacist. One of his sisters has a PhD in education. Uh, One worked for the state, and his two other brothers... uh, enlisted in the Army and did 20-year careers as enlisted members, and his youngest sister uh, was a school teacher. And at that time, the opportunities for women were not what they are today. Uh, a woman with a college degree could you know, reasonably expect to be a social worker, a teacher, uh, a librarian, you know, those were the, the a nurse, the, the career occupations that, you know, women were steered towards. And I was aware that, you know, through my father's educational success, he left the Army uh, following his two tours in Vietnam. Uh, the civilian sector in corporate America was looking uh, to diversify its workforce. A lot of that was under court order because of lawsuits that were filed against these corporations, uh, showing that they, either through omission or commission, did not have a diverse diverse workforce. And so uh, one of the institutions that had large numbers of college-degree professionals with leadership experience was the military, and they recruited heavily uh, through all departments of the armed services, the Air Force, the Navy, the Army. Uh, my father took advantage of that opportunity and transitioned into corporate America. Uh, he went into a management training program with AT&T back in 78. Um, 
bought a home in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, in, in, you know, an exclusively white neighborhood. But I understood because of the laws that changed in the Civil Rights Act of 68, uh, residential covenants were no longer a function of the law that could preclude uh, one from living in any neighborhood because of their race, religion, uh, or national origin. And by and large, I had a very wonderful childhood. I had friends of, of all different um, nationalities, you know, mostly uh, American white um, kids. We had sleepovers. We played Little League, hide-and-seek in the summer. Uh, very rich and wonderful childhood. But there were also incidents where I was aware that I was not fully included in a lot of other things that happened uh, with, my, with, you know, my peers. And uh, those are the types of things that I think we all have, you know, stories that we all have growing up. And I am very proud that the United States, as a society, kind of said that uh, discrimination is a cross that no one should have to bear. Uh, in the military, they have expounded upon that notion um, slowly but, but steadily to also recognize that sexism is something that should not be a cross that one has to bear. And in about the mid-70s, they opened up the service academies to women for the first time in 1976. And it was through that institutional change that uh, women were allowed to go to West Point, uh, to go to the Air Force Academy, to Annapolis. And in large numbers for the first time in American society, we had women who were introduced to STEM careers scientists, physicians, pilots, nuclear physicists uh, for submarines, and so on. In addition to the occupation, the career um, avenues that were opened up to large degrees of women as a function of the service academies opening to women, we also had women, women being groomed in leadership roles uh, as men had been for centuries uh, to be general officers. The young graduates of the military academy, we expect to be the future leaders of our armed forces. And uh, so that's the tradition that began. And now that we are into the 21st century, we have seen some of the fruits of those decisions that happened 40 years ago, uh, where we see, you know, the first woman four-star general. Uh, the military has gone on to expand its inclusiveness along the lines of gender inclusion with the removal of the combat exclusion. So mm-hmm. now when, when did that happen? When did the combat exclusion when did the combat exclusion go into place? Yeah, the combat exclusion uh, was removed in 2017 um, under the Obama administration. And the military did some very Um, thorough and systematic studies about weight-bearing. You know, an infantryman is expected to carry 120 pounds of combat gear uh, and their weapon, and there are certain tasks that they have to be able to do, and the Army very, or the Department of Defense very deliberately set about testing the physiological differences between men and women um, to ensure that women could withstand those physical rigors we are physiologically different. Um, that's, you know, um, science, you know, um, physiological differences between the genders. 
And they found that, um, by and large, uh, the majority of women can sustain the physical rigors of modern combat. We also look to foreign militaries. The Israeli army has had women um, in combat roles for some time before us, and we looked at their data to uh, see what their experiences were and came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, the combat exclusion no longer serves a purpose. Um, in fact, the only purpose it served was to exclude people who are talented and have the desire to uh, serve their nation in uniform in a combat role. So uh, in 2016, they changed that policy. So let's shift now from from that as the his, more historical context to how are you in, in your book defining inclusion? Yeah, sure. Uh, as you know, the world is a smaller place made smaller by technology. And the more inclusive we are um, as a workforce, as a nation, uh, whatever institution you want to apply this to, the more effective we are. And inclusion is simply removing the barriers to full participation uh, within an organization that are artificial in nature. Um, Barriers that may be legacy that have grown out of the status quo, well, that's just always the way it was, or that's always the way we did it. Uh, It requires an organization to look at itself critically uh, from that perspective to say, what artificial barriers do I have in place that prevent talented people from all walks of life from wanting to aspire to serve within my organization? Now, I'm assuming so, when you say removing those, you're talking about uh, policies, procedures, hiring practices, promotion, tracking, um, advancement, implicit bias. You're talking about a whole range of activities to, to actually implement changes, not just sprinkle fairy dust and say it's all okay. Precisely. Um, there, there are a, myri- a, a myriad of uh, aspects that have to be considered, many of which uh, you nailed. But also, there are the intangible barriers. Uh, For example, um, when the armed forces first opened itself up, uh, the service academies is one example that I will use, it didn't have a tradition of women. So they had to make a concerted effort to reach out to young women to say, hey, Here's the career opportunity for you, even though there may not be a preponderance of people who look like you that are serving, uh, DOD had to make a concerted effort to reach out to young women in high school as they were deciding where did they want to spend their four years to be educated to make them feel welcome. And that is a part of inclusion as well. It's not only enough to put it in policy and writing but you have to follow up behind your policy to make a genuine effort um, so that your policy comes to life in the acts and the words and the things that you do as an organization. So we're doing that in Columbus with IT leaders. We run an IT leader program helping people move from manager, director level into the CIO role. And the first class we conducted, even though we looked very hard at recruiting women, uh, the representation was low. And so we, I'm actually joining now the board of women in IT 
and where we are continuing to make a very concerted effort to make the make the training available, which also involves networking and, and getting people into the C-suite uh, rather than looking at it from a distance and not knowing what steps are required to get there. Exactly. That is the type of effort that is required that says to uh, your target audience, um, we're serious about our mm-hmm. policy changes. This is not just window dressing. Uh, this is mm-hmm. a concerted effort, and a lot of that education has to be internally focused as well. Um, one of the things, you know, I'm going to be very honest because these are struggles that organizations uh, contend with when you make this type of substantive change is to uh, look at your workforce and, you know, say, hey, we have a, an environment that is more inclusive now. Some of the things that may have been permissible um, can't be if we're going to be a more inclusive environment. The military struggles um, as broader society does with sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that is something an organization has to take on um, if you are serious about making your institution or your organization open uh, to to, uh, a diverse group. And uh, that goes beyond just sexual assault and sexual harassment. It can be culturally sensitive. Um, We talk about how people work and dress and wear their hair, and uh, these are all the the intangibles that um, each organization has to address when they're serious about becoming more inclusive. Thank you. That's a perfect place to go to break. This is Troy Mosley and Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders, Driving Thriving Organizations, and we're talking about creative in, creating inclusive organizations. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. 
Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're with Maureen Metcalf and Troy Mosley. We're talking about inclusion. So, Troy, as we went to break, you were talking about not only the policies and procedures, but the the actual things we put into practice, the culture of shifting from an abusive environment. And I happen to be uh, working in an Air Force organization as a consultant around when tailhook happened. And I Mm. believe that caused a great deal of probably shock and concern among a group of people who were surprised about that behavior and for others, no surprise at all. And it, I assume, caused a great deal of, of introspection and evaluating what is the culture really. And we're seeing it in other organizations now, so I'm not trying to pick on the military, but a lot of organizations with the Me Too movement are getting to take a critical look at themselves and for some people, I'm assuming horrified at what's happened in their companies without their knowledge. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Um, as you stated, 26 years uh, before Me Too, there was Tailhook. In uh, September of 1991, uh, the incident happened, and uh, the response was, uh, was tepid. It was kind of a, let's sleep, sweep this under the rug. Uh, we don't want a big PR stain uh, for the Department of the Navy. And a very courageous woman, a Navy lieutenant by the name of Paula Kaufman, uh, took matters into her own hands. Uh, she was not satisfied with the official report she got from the Navy. Held a press conference on the steps wow. of the Pentagon. So can you tell me what, what type of courage would it take for someone uh, in, in an in, industry that is predominantly dominated by men as a junior uh, manager to, to make that type of stand. Having worked in that environment, it would take a massive amount of courage. Yes. Uh, to, I mean, to her credit, uh, she, she had that type of courage and um, she did what she, she felt was, was necessary to, advance the Navy and and the Department of Defense in terms of their stance on um, sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault in the workforce. Um, You know, the military has learned from that. They still have problems uh, with sexual assault and sexual harassment. You know, um, there are no easy solutions. It's a a very complex and multifactorial issue that um, we still struggle with to this day. But one of the things that um, I emphasize and encourage is, um, you know, you treat people the way you want to be treated. Uh, everyone who comes into work is an individual that deserves uh, respect and courtesy, if nothing else. And it's not a matter of being someone's mother or someone's sister. That is someone, uh, a person that deserves um, treatment no different than you would want to be treated. And I think if if we are able to keep that type of culture in the forefront of uh, our workforce's thought process, it it you know can can pay some dividends. So I I'm just thinking if you were running 
if you were a member of the Joint Chiefs or if you were a CEO of any one of these companies who's now being impacted by the Me Too movement, again, I'm assuming that there are some segments of of any of these organizations that were highly aware of what was going on. No shock. And there are others who probably didn't have nearly as much awareness, just like any other organization. You've got pockets of inclusion and engagement and and really positive, vibrant workforces, and you've got other pockets that are not. So how do you, and I know you said it's a, a very complex challenge. Can you give us some concrete recommendations? And I'll jump in with some of my work as well, because I, like I said, I was consulting in, in environments that back in the 90s, right? So I'm not saying they are that way now, but back in the 90s were less comfortable for women. It just our entire U.S. culture has changed and with it our organizations. How would you move that needle? Well, you know, that's the $10,000 question. You know, how do you create a work environment that is engaging, uh, that is uh, professionally uh, challenging, that creates a synergy amongst your workforce um, without it becoming um, so loosey-goosey that you have people do things that are inappropriate? One of the things that um, DOD is looking at, and I, I certainly encourage every organization is they are in the process of changing their definition of sexual harassment. The old definition uh, that DOD used or still uses is sexual harassment is defined as any unwanted uh, attention, uh, conversation, or verbal exchange um, to someone that is of a sexual nature. And what they're changing to is they're removing the unwanted portion because that keeps the door cracked open just a little bit. So if a person Mm. uh, is flattered by it, then it's not sexual harassment by definition. So what they're going to is any uh, conversation or innuendo of a sexual nature um, is considered sexual harassment. They haven't adopted it, but they're looking at it. And it's to keep... Um, over, you know, conversations and things of a sexual nature out of the workplace because really they don't have um, a a place. uh, It's not appropriate. You know, if you want to have dinner with a colleague apart from work, that's fine. That's on your time. But if you're on um, duty, if you're on the clock, so to speak, you you really should not be talking about um, things of a a sexual nature. So that's that's one way that um, DOD is is concerned. What are your thoughts on that? Thank you for asking. It's an interesting question because the wanted and unwanted and thinking of people who want to date their colleagues, but one can probe that question without being sexually explicit or using sexual innuendo. I like the idea of just keeping you know it's interesting because we talk about people are engaged when they have a best friend at work which would suggest that we have more personal conversations and yet personal in in my view is i support my colleague in accomplishing their objectives and bringing them their best selves to work 
sex has no place in that conversation. Uh, and, and as I think about the folks I work with and the folks I coach, sex just isn't a topic. It's not, it's not what we talk about. It's not appropriate. So just running it through the logic test, it seems entirely reasonable that you reduce the, the risk. And the other mm-hmm. is um, this question, I would much rather have the, the, the criteria be a reasonable person because there are some people who are significantly more sensitive and they're entitled to their sensitivity and others who are completely insensitive on, on a range of topics, not just this. So to, to say, well, Sue thought it was okay, but Maureen thought it was offensive puts, puts a, um, in some cases, unreasonable standard on the colleagues because I can equally be accused of sexual um, intimidation if I'm talking about sex in a group of women. So I'm, I want to remove the gender piece of it. It, it is... If we, if we set a standard that is applied evenly across all people, then I think we are more likely to avoid the interpretation that someone can claim later that they were offended. And we end up potentially risking women losing a seat at the table because it's just harder to deal with us if everyone's worried that we're going to be sensitive. I would like to create an environment where we all have a space and it it's not that you wonder every time I walk in the room what mood I'm in and what I might be sensitive to. Let, let's create a more even playing field. Absolutely. Um, you have distilled the issue uh, down to its um, pertinent components. And that ability to fully disclose uh, with your colleagues is, is central to uh, establishing a good rapport at work. Uh, DOD and the military recognized this, uh, which was a big um, part of them removing the exclusion, uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy, which essentially said, if you are gay or lesbian, you can serve as long as you do not reveal your sexual orientation. And that policy was ushered in in the Clinton administration. It was a compromise. Uh, the Clinton administration wanted gays and lesbians to be able to serve openly, but their political opposition did not. So that resulted in don't ask, don't tell. Some 10 years later, uh, the executive leaders of the military realized that, hey, being able to fully disclose your life and those who are significant to you is essential to establishing a good working rapport. And in um, July 22nd of 2011, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed as a policy where gay and lesbian citizens could serve openly. So I understand completely of what you describe about that ability to be able to uh, engage in, in compelling and, and, and pertinent conversation that is essential mm-hmm. to who we are and and our ability to connect with others and and be our best at work. You know, I facilitate a CEO forum, and there is a component of the forum where people share what's going on in their personal lives, and there's one person who just never shares what anything about 
um, his partner, his life, and it's odd. Over time, it just strikes me as odd. Right, and and there's no way that um, that space that is created by not um, disclosing um, has an impact on your career. It has to. It it makes you stand apart from your colleagues. So um, I guess one thing that leaders can can do is just to be sincere and to be genuine. You know, people can tell uh, when, when you are, you know, um, not true to, to what you're saying. And uh, mm-hmm. as long as, you know, leaders are very sincere about wanting people to succeed, about accepting uh, people and valuing the contribution that each of us brings to the table, I think that's a good foundation uh, to build on. You know, I want to elaborate on something I just said, uh, talking about people not disclosing. The flip side of that is in some environments, especially if you're a member of the LGBT community, it's not safe to disclose. So there, back to your point about don't ask, don't tell, we created a barrier. And for someone who has been discriminated or ostracized for who they are and who they love, it takes a a while to build trust that my colleagues will in fact not, in some cases, do to me what others have. So it's a, back to your, it's it's a sticky um, situation where we just say, trust me. Well, sometimes you have to prove that you're trustworthy. And so it does take time to change a culture where people just prefer to be quiet about their more person the more personal aspects of their lives. It, it is unfortunate when who you hang out with on the weekends has to be secret. Oh, you're so right. There's there is a lot of risk involved uh, with with uh, what you share uh, with your work colleagues colleagues, especially if you are from a member of a protected status, um, you know, a gay, lesbian, or, or minority, because, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a world of bias, and, and uh, there are some people that, that still harbor bias against, uh, you know, groups of minorities, and you just never know who those people are. So, um, you know, again, that's something that can only be dealt with if we're sincere and earnest and uh, one example of how you deal with that, um, we had a rear admiral in the Navy, uh, Alan Steinman. He became the highest ranking uh, DOD service member to come out immediately after, after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And in doing so, he kind of said, hey, you know, here I am, someone that is a CEO within this organization, a senior executive, and, you know, I'm a homosexual and I'm proud of it. And uh, for the people underneath them to see that uh, certainly gave them cause to be a little bit um, more secure in, in their ability to disclose. Um, it's, it's complex. It really is. Um, it starts at the top. Leaders set the tone, and they have to be sincere. And uh, it does trickle down. I, I honestly believe that. I, I do, too. And... I also recognize that some leaders are are incredibly uncomfortable in setting that tone. Not not that they 
don't believe that people should be included, but they don't know how. Well, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, change is difficult. Uh, I say it's analogous to, uh, to you know, uh, weightlifting. You know, the way you get bigger, stronger muscles is that you challenge them with a heavier load, mm-hmm. and your muscles respond by getting bigger and stronger. Uh, similarly, with mm-hmm. social issues, those things that have the power to make us in- uncomfortable have the power to change us. And it is uh, in that place where you're uncomfortable, where if you deal with it earnestly, uh, you have the opportunity for growth. And I'll give you a perfect example. When, uh, I, when, when uh, we first began to see images of gays and lesbians on mainstream television, I was uncomfortable with the sight of two men kissing. It, it bothered me. And it was out of a place of ignorance because I had not seen it. Um, you know, I wasn't used to seeing it. And I had to uh, deal with this unrest internally and say, Troy, why does that bother you? And I honestly couldn't give myself a satisfactory answer. And now I'm much more comfortable uh, to the fact uh, that, you know, if I see two men walking down the street holding hands or men or women kissing on television, it doesn't create that same level of angst. But that's something that each of us has to do as an individual. Mm -hmm. First, recognize the possibility that we have bias and then deal with it earnestly. Well, and to to add complexity to this, there are certainly people whose religious faith prohibits this. Uh, And so they're dealing with an internal conflict that they can very much point to. And as a person running a business, in some states, it's still legal to fire people for your orientation, uh, which is a bit of a... um, struggle for me as a person who fully believes that everyone should have rights, but it, in some states they don't. You, you're exactly right, Maureen. And, um, you know, you're, you're really dealing with some heavy issues. <laughs> this morning. And, uh, but again, going back to my earlier point, it is out of this struggle um, mm-hmm. to look at ourselves, to question what we have been taught to question what is written that we do grow as a society. And you could make the parallel that uh, in the 1950s, when, you know, in the 1960s, when you had uh, black people marching in the streets, asking for their right to vote, um, you would have some honest, hardworking Americans that felt like, hey, don't be in such a rush. Give it time. It'll happen. Uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail in response to the uh, clergy uh, in Alabama kind of, um, you know, articulate that argument uh, where, you know, he was being told, uh, you're pushing too fast, just kind of wait, just kind of sit back, it'll happen. Now we can all look backwards on that and see how wrong uh, these people Mm -hmm. were in their opposition to someone trying to self-advocate for the same rights and privileges as everyone else had. We have to be able to look forward uh, through that same lens that is unencumbered by agenda to say, am I doing this for the right reason? Um, Am I doing this 
because someone else told me to do it. Whatever the reasons are that move us, um, we need to challenge them. And, and uh, if our faith is not accepting, then, hey, that, that's understandable. But the beauty of living in a democracy is that everyone has a voice. And we've mm-hmm. kind of uh, agreed, as, agreed as a society that, hey, the majority wins. And if, you know, I'm not okay with um, how, you know, minorities are treated in this area and I'm not able to sway the opinion, I have the freedom to continue to try to deal with it or to move elsewhere. So, so that's a, uh, a I think great that's a great point we're going to go into break and I'd like to talk about as we return maybe the the question of democracies and how do they how does living in a democracy impact this conversation we'll be right back Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is the final segment with Troy Mosley, and we are talking about his book. And specifically, we before break, we're talking about how democracies play into the organizational climate that that impacts our, our work environments. So, Troy, you talked about the idea of the interconnection between faith and laws. Let's pick up there. Yeah, sure. Um, I would speak from my own personal upbringing. I was raised in an Episcopal church. And, um, you know, for those who are not familiar with it, some people call it uh, Catholicism light. Um, but essentially, it balances our understanding of the universe on three legs. Uh, religious doctrine, 
and the teachings of the Bible, uh, science and our understanding of the universe, and our, our own eternal faith. What What do you feel in your heart is right? And, and um, as Episcopalians, um, if you're confirmed in that tradition, uh, that is your outlook. Um, I know that there are other religions that are much more prescriptive in, uh, you know, what they um, espouse for their uh, members to believe in. But um, at the end of the day, um, I think we all have to consider um, not only what, you know, is written in, in whatever Bible, Quran, or, um, you know, the Book of Mormon or whatever religion you may aspire to, but I think we also have to look within our heart and, and, uh, and use our common sense about um, how we approach the world and it's interesting to me, a lot of times uh, people can be anti-gay uh, or lesbian or whatever until their son or daughter comes out. And that perspective mm-hmm. changes uh, our one's outlook. So um, it, it is uh, something that we, we all have to struggle with. But as long as we are able to engage each other in honest conversation and we go into the conversation seeking to understand uh, different viewpoint rather than argue it down. I think that's how we move the needle as a society. Yeah, I like the idea of seeing taking different perspectives and and being allowed, if you if that's the right term, to disagree that in a democracy we're not going to all agree. And at some point it really is those who vote win and it's a majority wins interaction. And and the challenge is if I completely disagree and my personal views, especially if they're based on my perception of my faith, and I realize all Episcopalians don't see the world the same, nor do Catholics or Hindus or Buddhists, that if the laws and my faith differ, it has to be a significant personal struggle. Right, yes. Uh, one of the things that we've seen play out recently is just the extreme polarization of uh, political views um, in the nation and in, and in some regards, many regards across the world. And uh, hopefully the pendulum will begin to swing back towards the middle. I think to your point, uh, we are better when uh, more people participate in the uh, political process because you get um, greater data points. Um, you, you get um, mm-hmm. closer to the true reality of, of what the, the desires of the people are uh, with regards mm-hmm. to the law. And yet, I I will often jokingly say, you know, crowds seem wise until they disagree with me, and then I think they're unwise. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly. I assume <laughs> lots of people have that view that my morality differs and yet the good news for people like me is people like me being probably the the more inclusive in my view that the laws happen to be supporting my view that it is and the data does so give us a little bit of the data about things like women in the military women in executive ranks, uh, maybe people of color uh, across the broad spectrum of 
color. How does that look right now, and what's the data about why inclusion works? Yeah, sure. Uh, from the perspective of, um, of black people, I'll use uh, Fortune 500 CEOs as a litmus test. Uh, less than 5% um, of the Fortune 500 CEOs are of African descent right now. And that number is dwindling as you have uh, some of the, the graybeards, if you will, the long-term uh, CEOs like uh, Kenneth Chenault, um, who announced his retirement, um, are, are beginning to uh, retire out of their official ranks. Uh, when you look at uh, women uh, within the Fortune 500 community, they also make up less than 5% of uh, CEOs. Um, the, the numbers are what they are. I think uh, back in the 90s, we had a high watermark for African-Americans of something like 8.5% and 11% for women. Um, those numbers are, you know, on the decline. I don't have any studies or data to explain uh, the phenomenon, but, you know, that's kind of what we're seeing today. Uh, if I pivot and, and look at what's going on in the military, I can tell you that uh, women make up about 6.5% of uh, the C-suite of flag officers that are on active duty. Uh, African-Americans make up about 6%. And... Um, Total minority population, that being of members of a uh, protected uh, class, about 11% of the military um, flag officers or corporate C-suite equivalents uh, make up the top general officer positions. Um, as a father of two daughters, I don't want there to be anything to challenge any of my children from succeeding to the limits of their ability. And uh, when I speak to groups and organizations, I think that's a good place for people to begin with as we shape policy and make recruitment decisions. Uh, think about your children and, and uh, the world you want for them to live in. You know, that was one of the statements I heard a while back that really stuck with me. The world will change when fathers of daughters are in leadership roles and they want their daughters to have something different. And it seems like a almost a universal truth that that those people, when they're making decisions, will make different decisions than their predecessors did. That is certainly our hope. Um, I know at one point I felt the same way with regards to racism. I will tell you the events of uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, caused me to re-examine that as uh, a majority of the faces that were being beamed across the airways were that of young, angry white men. And I really want to understand uh, what's kind of shaping the force of these young people, uh, you know, who are the prime of their life in their 20s and, and 30s that have the world in front of them that feel so aggrieved that they need to assert um, a greater ownership of uh, American ideals and values. I, I really am looking to understand that phenomenon. You know, I am too, because it, it is disheartening to say the least. Uh, I was um, speaking to a group of leadership PhD candidates about a week after that happened in at James Madison University. And, and the folks in that audience, many who lived in Charlottesville, were just distraught 
that this was happening in their community. So I think it does call for all of us who believe in inclusion to to be curious, which is an understatement for what we need to do. We need to take action, but we need to understand what we're taking action for and against to really resolve that, to your point, there are there is a percentage of our young population who feels excluded and angry, and how do we address that in a way that doesn't create additional unintended consequences and really starts to to bring together our communities and our country to to promote the the health of everyone, not just segments. And Troy, I want to see if you'll do maybe a wrap-up statement because I want to make sure we have time for you to give information about your book again. Yeah, sure. Um, the name of my book is Unwritten Truths, The Armed Forces and American Social Justice. In it, I use uh, histories of inclusion uh, within the military that have affected our broader society and also um, how the virtues of conclusion uh, can be towards the betterment of any organization. Uh, if you want to market or sell to the world, uh, you need to have a greater understanding of your market, and I can think of no better way of doing that than to have a diverse workforce that comes um, from the population of people that you seek to serve. So um, the, the, the benefits are significant. Um, I would encourage anyone Check out the book. It's available at Amazon.com. And I hope it causes us to have more deep and thoughtful conversations. Seek first to understand and get everyone engaged in uh, the process of making the world a better place. Thank you, Troy. One last time, the name of the book. Unwritten Truths, The Armed Forces, American Social Justice. Thank you. You've been a fabulous guest, and I really appreciate your perspective on the history and how we got here and concrete steps we can take going forward, ranging from, well, starting to understand, and then policies, culture changes, the idea that each of us has to really examine what do we believe, what makes us uncomfortable, and what do we stand for, what are our values as leaders, and what is our legacy. So this is Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I would love to hear your feedback. You can reach me at info at metcalf-associates.com or on our Facebook page, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. And I hope everyone heard something today that will slightly impact your mindset about inclusion and or specific tactical behaviors you take to ensure that you are including everyone in a way that is fair and equitable, whether that's in a workplace or a soccer team or community activities. By creating an inclusive world, we really do raise the opportunity for everyone in our communities. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.